Hi, I'm Joey Ellswick from Richmond, Virginia. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio This week on The Sound of Young America, Southern hip-hop legend Bun B of UGK. Before we talk to Bun, let's hear a cut from UGK's new and final album, UGK for Life. Study long, study wrong, nigga. Check one, two, one, two, one, two, bitch. Tony Snow, know what I'm talking about? Jack Triple Three's company, ho. Percy Mack, Sweet Jones. Check it out. They on the grind, fucking hold it fine. Get it all the time, made my life on the line. Sipping, smoking, broke. Pimp dick on your hoe. Make her open the scope. VIP on the low. Gator swinging out. Swingers hanging out. Never banging out. Got broke, got slanging out. Keep a yellow pro. And a brown horse. And a squad too. I'm the player choice. So pimp it, say your voice. Hold your breath, shut your lip. Oh, you can't handle bunny. You can't fuck with pimp. We like serpent turf. They call us naked shrimp. No for shaking lames and famous, but making sip. Trill is never born. G is never built. Fuck with us, you'll be the deadest souls ever killed. Live from the corner, direct from the hood. Be a satellite bitch. Yeah. The king's tripping wood and it's good. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Bun B, is one half of one of the most influential hip-hop groups of all time, UGK. Over the past 20 years, they've recorded many record albums, including two solo albums from Bun himself. Bun's cohort, Pimp C, passed about two years ago from uh, a combination of uh, sleep apnea and an overdose of codeine cough syrup, and their new album, is their final one, recorded with vocals that Pimp recorded before he passed. Uh, Bun, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's really hey, great to have you. Hey, happy to be here. Happy to be here. So you're from Port Arthur, Texas, and I've only been to Texas um, like in the airport on my way to Mexico. So uh, tell me a little bit about what Port Arthur was like when you were growing up. Well, Port Arthur, Texas is a refinery town. You know, we're right on the uh, on the water, of course, hence the port to the title. But, um, you know, we're only about 15, 20 miles away from Spindletop, which was uh, one of the biggest oil derricks ever uh, found in America. So um, built up around Spindletop and, you know, different kinds of oil wells like like it. Um, this entire community area of, of the world basically sprouted up to uh, support the oil industry. You, your folks didn't work uh, directly in the oil industry, right? No, no. My um my my mother worked in uh like private health care and my stepfather was a janitor. How old were you when you first met Pimp C? Uh well I had already known him, you know, that's the thing about Port Arthur, it was a small town. So everyone kinda knew everybody. You know, his mom was a librarian at the high school, his his uh his stepfather was uh 
you know, band director, one of the, the I mean, one of the choir directors at the school. So everybody kind of knew who he was because of who his parents were. I didn't really get to, I guess, say build a friendship with him until probably 88, 89. Were you already a hip hop fan then? Oh, absolutely. That was that unusual because, you know, in, in 1985, 1986, almost all of the hip hop artists who were on the radio were from the, were from the Northeast. No, I mean, because we loved music. You know, we didn't really label, you know, music didn't start getting labeled until probably the early 90s. But up until that point, it was basically just, you know, rap or hip hop. But no, I mean, we liked the music and we didn't care where it was coming from, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, uh, Prince Arabian and the early Dr. Dre stuff um, on the West Coast, or whether it was a Juice Crew on the East Coast, a Tough Crew coming from the Midwest, or Luke Records and that whole movement coming from the South and Rap A Lot Records coming from here in Texas. We supported it all because it was still new and fresh to everybody. So we were still in the, in the point where we just wanted to take it in. We weren't so quick to judge it at the time. What excited you about it? Uh, I think just the energy and, and the spontaneity of it. You know what I'm saying? I had always thought that the process of making music was a long, drawn-out thing. And we finally started seeing these hip-hop records being created from scratch right on the spot and seeing people freestyling and you know, I was a break dancer as well, so coming from that whole little movement, you know, I I was already in it. And, you know, uh, just really being able to see guys, you know, you know, spontaneously breaking the moves on the street and the DJs spontaneously scratching different records and stuff and MCs freestyling and different things like that. I just enjoyed the spontaneity of it. I just wanted to be a part of that energy, you know, being in the, in the middle of that circle of people with everybody standing around pumping you up, you know. You're a big guy. Were you a big guy when you were in high school breaking? Um, I wasn't ever a small guy, but uh, I, I wasn't as big as I am now. When I graduated, <laughs> I was probably about 185 pounds. This is funny because we were just talking about this today. I graduated at about 185, 190 maybe, and by the time we released the first album on Jive Records in November of 92, I was probably 300 plus. Wow, that's a lot bigger. Yeah. What changed? Uh, eating habits, sleeping habits, <laughs> you know, it tends to come with the job. So let's get back, uh, to you and Pimps starting UGK in high school. How old were you when you, uh, when you got to know him for real? Uh, I would say about 15, 16 years old. Were you guys instant friends or, uh, no, not at all. Not at all. Pimpsy and uh, Bum B, uh, by nature are very, very different individuals different to the point where if we had not had business together we would not have business together if that makes any sense like i typically don't hang around with people that act like pimp c pimp c doesn't typically hang around people that act like me how do you guys act what do you mean i mean i mean i'm the yin to his yang and vice versa you know what i'm saying uh when we initially started i was much more the extrovert you know i was the person that was out hanging out all the time, you know what I'm saying, on the corners and stuff like that. Pimp C was more reserved in the house, making music, concentrating on music more than anything. As time grew on, as, as things started getting more serious and we started getting more exposure, I started really understanding how much of a business it was, and I became more introverted and started trying to really understand the business side of it. And once Pimp C started realizing how popular we were starting to get it, he started to you know, come more out of his shell and embrace the fame and the you know, the, the, I guess, all the lavish luxuries that comes with that. What kind of student were you? For me, I was a pretty good, pretty good student. What led you to uh, finish high school and decide to go with music instead of, uh, for example, go to college? Well, I felt, you know, I'd give it a year, you know, see what happens. If not, I'd retake my entrance exam, 
my SAT scores would still hold up. If not, I could take an ACT or something and and you know get in get in. But I figured it would only take about a, you know a year of my time away. But if I was going to try it, it was either try it now. You know. What did your folks think of it? Oh, they couldn't. They didn't like it at all. <laughs> my my mom did not want me hanging around Chad. She did not like me with that boy. I was the first one of uh, of us to even graduate. You know what I'm saying? High school. Most of my other brothers and been to prison or you know got a you know GEDs or whatever so um my mom just felt it was just a a road down just downhill from there as in uh rap was to her a gateway occupation that was going to lead me deeper and deeper down into this this pit of hell or just not going to college just anything that was just not college just was not working with her were you doing street stuff too at the time um not until after I graduated really how did the what was the relationship between you you know making money doing stuff that was illegal and you making money making records like how did how did one flow into the other and you know what were what well, were the... at the at the time we weren't making any money making records that's the thing you know what i'm saying we were still trying to make records i mean to be very frank with you we were hustling to make music to go in the studio and record music and stuff like that and, um, you know, it was always with the understanding that eventually this music would sell and we wouldn't have to do any of this tree stuff anymore. That was a time when uh, hip-hop, where you were from, was sort of a new phenomenon, at least outside of um, maybe a small circle of, of rap-a-lot artists out of Houston. Did you have an idea of how making music as guys from Port Arthur would be different from making music if you're, you know, the world-class world class wrecking crew in L.A. or your KRS-One in New York? Not at all, um, because we didn't have any idea how they were making their music. <laughs> so we had no way of taking it into consideration. We were just kind of feeling our way through it, you know? The early 90s was the birth or at least the birth in the mainstream of gangster rap and the kind of themes that, that you guys talked about a, a lot in your records I, I was just listening to pocket full of stones which was one of the first records that you guys did that had a, a big national impact and it's basically just a song about selling crack <laughs> I, I disagree uh, Go if, ahead. You, if you really listen to the record you'll notice that we start out on the corner hustling we end up making a lot of money from it we end up getting busted going to jail, doing time, coming back out, and end up doing the same thing again. What we're trying to show is that if you get inside this world, you end up in a never-ending cycle. But I guess you didn't get that. <laughs> it's the sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Bun B, is half of the Texas hip-hop group UGK and one of rap's most respected MCs. His new album with his late partner, Pimp C, is called UGK for Life. Who, who did you feel like you were representing for on record? I feel like I was representing the average person growing up in Port Arthur, Texas. You know, there's not a lot of people in Port Arthur who... Um, I don't want to say that there's not opportunity, because of, of course there is opportunity, but there's not a lot of examples of people who have overcome, you know? And, you know, for me, it's like, uh, we always wanted to try to inspire one way or the other. It's like if you're going to, you know, whatever it is you choose to be, be the best at it and be the smartest at it. You know what I'm saying? Now that, if you're going to be a janitor, a criminal, a cop, or a police, uh, I mean, or a doctor, 
whatever it is you're going to do, just be smart about it. Understand everything that you get yourself into. Because I know a lot of people that went into into the, you know, into uh, being a, you know, a peace officer and thought that it was just going to be, you know, rolling around giving people tickets. And then next thing you know, they're dealing with hostage situations and, and you know, you know, uh, answering 911 calls and people are, you know, dying in their arms. Like, it's a very serious occupation. So you have to every, understand everything that whatever it is you choose to get yourself involved with encompasses because nothing is what it seems. When did you start first start feeling like your records were having uh, a national impact, an, an impact outside of, um, you know, Texas, Louisiana, Memphis, these markets where, where you had built up this huge following? I think, you know, for an artist, your first... Um, your first sense of knowing what's going on is getting booked for a show. You know, uh, you you don't know whether or not people like you in Memphis until somebody calls you and say, "Hey, we, you know, somebody wants to book you in Memphis." That means that people not only like the music, they like the artist, and they're you know they're willing to spend beyond just the song on a radio or an album. And then you know we we started out initially just doing shows in Texas, then initially then eventually going over to you know Louisiana. Alabama, Mississippi, and <clears throat> going out further and further into different places. And, you know, the further your shows take you, the, the the more you realize how many people you're touching and how far your music reaches out. And, that you know, that's not only, um, you know, nationally, but internationally as well. You know, just started doing um, some of my first international shows over the last two years, and these guys are wearing uh, R.I.P. Pimp C shirts and, you know, Trill, you know, New Era hats and, they represent it in Denmark or Finland the same way they represent it in Florida or Texas. Do you feel like people have a different reaction or had a different reaction in the, say, in the 90s when you were when you were first doing shows in, I don't know, Chicago or, or New York, that they had a very that they had a different understanding of you and your music than, than the folks in, say, Texas? Um, I wouldn't say different. I, I think they just latched on to different things. You know what I'm saying? Um People in Chicago may have latched on to Pimp C's player, Pimp Style, because there's a lot of that if you go to Chicago. People in D.C. may have latched on to, uh, you know, the dancing, the the, the the double time of the music because they're into more go-go and dancey type stuff. You know, uh, Florida may be getting into it because of the bass, because Pimp C used a lot of heavy 808 bass initially. So, it, you know, different regions brought into it for different things, but it, whatever initially pulled them in, Eventually, it was the entire package that kept them there. That kept, well, I speak of them as if it's not me, but kept us there with people, you know? You guys had this huge breakthrough when you were on the uh, the couldn't have been bigger Jay-Z hit Big Pimpin'. Mm-hmm. Um, I, heard that, uh, I heard that when you first got the call from... Uh, from New York to do the record, Pimp was ambivalent about uh, about getting on it, and, and you were a little bit more for it. What, what was it like? Well, I mean, it was just the fact of it was obvious what doing a record with Jay-Z at that time was going to mean in terms of exposure and uh, being presented to an audience different than ours. Um, I was all for it. I was ready for it. I didn't have any issues with it. Pimp was, on the other hand, very concerned about people who have been supporting us up to that time would look to us and thinking that maybe this was a direction that we wanted to go. You know, I kept trying to impress upon him the fact that this was not a UGK record. It was a Jay-Z record and it would not reflect on, on us like that. But uh, he he still was, was very apprehensive about it. You mean essentially kind of going pop? Basic. Well, not going pop, but being letting perception be that we were wanting to go pop or we were intending to go pop. Why did you end up deciding to do it? 
Oh, me, I did it because I wanted, I wanted to be on a big record. I mean, it was time for us to be exposed to people. I wanted people to see what UGK could do. I wanted people to see my lyrical ability next to Jay-Z's, you know, more than anything. You know, this was an opportunity for an amateur fighter to get in, in a ring with a title holder. You know what I'm saying? Sure. And, you know, you want, you want to at least last to the 12th round. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, I mean, if you're lucky enough to get some good licks in along the way, then fine. If you can get a knockout, great. But at the end of the day, I just wanted to make sure that I made it through the, to the 12th round, you know? You have such a great verse on that record. And um, one of the things that's always struck me about it is, um, you know, at the time, Jay-Z was stylistically all about almost trying to be effortless, trying to never never break a sweat. Mm-hmm. And you kind of burst into the song, you know, fist fist flying lyrically. What was it like to go into that studio and know that like you really wanted to make an impression? Well, I, I think what happened in that case, um, as I look back on it, I, I, I look at it and I see that Jay-Z anticipating doing a record with Bun B and Bun B anticipating a record with Jay-Z comes from two different places and the end result is going to be a different thing. Not to say that he underestimated me or that I overestimated him, but I think with his idea of the kind of record that he wanted to do was probably going to be more of a laid back, riding kind of a situation. Myself, I felt like this was my one chance to rap against Jay-Z. I need to show lyrical dexterity. I need to show just how good a writer I am, period, point blank. Um, this is not the time to sit back and just and phone it in, you know? Big Southern rap here from Sario. Coming straight about the Black Barrio. Make some meal about the sorry. What? I sit back and beat my scenario. Who's my bad? That's my scenario. No, I can't f- scare it. What? Now every time, every place, everywhere we go. Well, stop pointing and say, there he go. Now these folks know we carry more heat than a little bit. We don't pull it out over little shit. And if you catch a lick when I spit, then it won't be a little hit. Go read a book, you illiterate son of a bitch. Step up your vocab. Don't be surprised if your there. Ride with me and you see it's coming down on your slab. Uh, smoke and I going up. One of the things that I've always wondered about that album or that record, and that you'll, I hope you'll forgive me for asking, but the uh, the chorus is uh, big pimpin', spending cheese, and then spending cheese is rhymed with uh, uh, sitting on uh, BLADs. Yes. Um, which I'm pretty sure, like, Jay-Z's a pretty good speller and everything. But isn't that Blads? Haha, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I've always wondered, like, if somebody says something like, like, are you just, like, kind of nervous to go up to Jay-Z and be, say, I think there's an, you should say an E at the end of that. <laughs> well, actually, that's my chorus. I, that's the way that I did my verse. He had done, when he had went in, he had done his verse, and he had done another, a chorus to fit his. And I did mine because... We called core rims, car rim blades, and I figured people would just, he kind of like, is understood, kind of like, why? I didn't think it was going to be a big deal, <laughs> and I could always kind of bluff that I wrote it as in D-E apostrophe S. You know what I'm saying? Because uh, that still works. But, um, no, I mean, it, um, you know, he, he's a great writer, man. I don't think anybody needs to be able to start uh, pointing out his English. And I think if it got down to, <laughs> I think if we all start pointing out each other's grammatical errors in rap, we wouldn't get anything accomplished. <laughs> I think I think everybody's pretty much using uh, short order shorthand in here. You know, we're all, we're all diner chefs in this thing.
It's the sound of young America from MaximumFun.org. We'll have more with Bun B from UGK when we come back in just a minute. Hey, it's Jesse. I'm just breaking in to let you know that it's Maximum Fun Drive time on the sound of young America. Until May 15th, we're asking you to support our show with a pledge. Give, of course, and ye shall receive. We've got tons of awesome thank you gifts ranging from comedy CDs and DVDs to books to an all-new T-shirt. The more you give, the more you get. So, run, don't walk to the computer, and dial up the all-new MaximumFun.org. Click on Donate, and you'll know you're sustaining something that you really care about. Then every time you listen to our shows, you'll get that, Hey, I support this feeling. MaximumFun.org is unique in the media landscape. There aren't any other shows like ours supported by donations from people like you. There aren't any other national radio programs run by one guy, an intern, and a part-time editor. There's just The Sound of Young America and MaximumFun.org. And there's only The Sound of Young America and MaximumFun.org if you support it. Visit the new MaximumFun.org and click on Donate now. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Bun B and his partner Pimp C were Texas hip-hop legends by the mid-1990s, but it was their featured slot on Jay-Z's 2000 smash hit Big Pimpin' that made them national stars. When that record came out and was such an enormous hit, it was just as you guys kind of hit a snag with Jive. Um, was it really frustrating to be kind of caught in the middle, unable to get this this record out, just as you really reached national prominence? It wasn't so much that Jive wasn't willing to put the record out. Jive was more so concerned about piggybacking the success with Big Pimp and, and in a sense, trying to duplicate it. So their concern was to, okay, let's go get another Timberland track. Let's um, you know, let's get a verse from Jay-Z. Let's get hyped to shoot a video. And, you know, we'll go in and just make another one. And we were like, well, you know, well, we can do all of that, but... Right now, we need to make sure that we put out a record so that the people that have been now in UGK up to this point don't think that we're trying to go pop. And then, you know, we'll do a street record, you know, for our people, and then we'll come back with this. We're like, no, well, we really need to do this first. Like, we need to get this done now and just keep going. I'm like, well, I mean, if I don't do this record with Jay-Z and the Timberland and all that, you tell is that, are you saying that you're not going to support it? Let's not talk about that. Let's just talk about getting the Jay-Z verse. I'm like, matter of fact, well, if that's the way you feel, then I don't want to do a record. I don't want a Timberland track or a Jay-Z verse on this album at all. If that's the only way you're going to support this record, I don't want, I'm I'm not doing that. You know what I'm saying? So that became a war of words. And so they just kind of like didn't want to talk to us at all. It seemed like when that finally got settled, you know, the frustration was just compounded when, uh, you know that was that was right about when Pimp ended up going to jail. Right. But what happened? Well, he he went to jail for uh for violating his probation. I, I want to say yeah, for a probation violation on a um, what was it? An attempted assault with a handgun. Basically, he you know got into it with a group of people in the mall and um pulled his gun in the mall. And that was basically that's attempted aggravated assault basically. So he had ended up getting probation for it, but ended up, but after that, violated his probation. So that's what it, what uh, on several occasions, which is what um, ended up getting him incarcerated. It seems like you chose very specifically to take that time that he was in jail to um, to sort of celebrate him and celebrate the group, rather than say, you know. 
just coming out and, and, and making a bunch of solo records. Why did you choose that? Why, why did it become about Free Pimp C then? Well, you know, me, myself, personally, I never had any desire to be a solo artist. I was in a great group. I had a great partner. I had no issues. So I never had any desire to go solo. So for me, um, it was all about the group. I knew at the end of the day, it was never about just him or just me. It was about what the pair and what we represented, you know, meant more basically than than who just the physical group was. So I, myself, I you know, not having the full strength of the group to lean on, I felt like all I could lean on is the legacy. You know what I'm saying? And uh, you know the what what the group means to people, and you know by expressing what it meant to me and how much I love the group and how much I miss Pimp, it gave people a, a chance to be a part of something, which people always want to be a part of something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But by, you know, doing the Free Pimp C movement, which was not an original movement. It's not anything that hadn't been done before. You know, um, they had just, you know, done the Free Yayo movement with 50 Cent. Um, so that it wasn't anything that was brand new that I invented or anything. It's just, I guess, just the fact of how long I carried the torch for it, you could say. It really was a long time. What was it, about four years? About four years. That's a long time to do that. Was it, was it hard? Were there times when you, you know, doubted your uh, resolve? Uh, you know, yeah, initially. I mean, before I really um, got out and got determined, initially I wasn't really sure. But at the time, you know, I was I was fragile uh, mentally and spiritually. And that leaves you open to, to basically fall apart. You got to be careful. So um, I had to get myself spiritually based again. I had to, um, you know, really start accepting a lot of more responsibility uh, for myself, um, not just as an artist, but as a person, you know what I'm saying? And really just try to tie up a lot of loose ends in my life. And uh, by doing so, it, j- it just helped me get strong, you know, build strong relationships at home, build stronger relationships with, with, with friends and family. And that gave me the backbone and the courage to go out and do what I knew I had to do, you know what I'm saying, by having a strong support system. How close did you come to falling apart? Oh, I mean, it was, man, it was probably a two-month period where I was drinking anywhere from a half of a fifth of uh of cognac to a fit to a full fifth of cognac um you know just driving and just pulling over jumping out of the car and just walking for miles and just uh it got pretty it got pretty erratic for a while you know and and again it never was really about just the the group and the career or money or anything at that because we had just signed a good deal and you know financially i was okay you know i was going to be okay until i got to earning other money it was just you know Everything that we had worked for up to that point seemed like it had just was just falling apart. The movement that you built during those those four years was really powerful, and it was also coincidental with a really strong upsurge in in hip hop in in Houston on the national scene. What was it like when when Pimp first got out? I was just happy that when Pimp got out, that we still had a little bit of light shining somewhat on the southern hip hop scene, particularly in Houston. Um, up until that point, everyone had gotten a real good run. We had been getting a lot more exposure, a lot more promotion, a lot more corporate opportunities um, that we had ever gotten as artists in our region. And I was just really happy that he was able to come home before everything kind of slowed down and shut down, you know, for him to be able to take full advantage of the music industry, has, which wasn't available at the time when he went to prison. I mean, you, you know, he came home and merchandising was there and setting up websites and you know being able to direct content directly to who you wanted to and being able to get interactive feedback like almost in real time and 
You know what I'm saying? It was, you know, being able to give people exactly what they wanted and you knew it was what they wanted because that's what they were telling you. What was it like to record with him again after that that really long wait? Initially, we both were kind of nervous because, you know, we weren't sure if the chemistry was still going to be there musically. Um, but we just went about the process the same way we did before. You know, Pip and I never um, showed our rhymes or said, this is what I'm saying or whatever because we kind of knew um, the direction that the other would go in. It was obvious that Pimpsey was going to speak to a situation from one aspect and I would speak from the other. And we never really had a concern about stepping on each other's toes content wise. And uh, so we didn't bring that up um, when we went in and it was it was a perfect match on time. Nobody talking over anybody. And it was obvious that, you know, our connection was real. It was pure and it was bigger than, you know, prison or, or time or separation. Well, it's the pimp and the bum. We back in the game. It's the kings of the underground. Remember the name? I said you niggas got fat. While pimping was gone, now you fencing and cough it up. Your ass was dead wrong. So it's best that you head home. Did anything change about him after four years in, in jail? I don't want to say that he was more appreciative because he was very grateful for everything that we've gotten. But I think he wanted to make sure that he wasn't without a lack of music. He was very, um, you know, concerned about not being heard in any downtime, you know, because the, the, rea the reality was that he had made parole, but there was always a possibility for, that under any circumstances that parole could have been violated and he could end right back up in prison. So he just became a lot more focused and a lot more determined to have recorded music because we'd always taken it for granted that we could always go back and do something. How did that change things for you? I was loving it. I mean, I, you know, at the time been on a rampage anyway, musically trying to rap on basically any and everything I could. So for me, it didn't stop anything. We, it was just, let's go. Let's do it. I'm, I'm I'm all about it. And I was just happy to be back in with my friend again, rapping to music that, you know, there's a lot of great, you know, producers out here, people like Jazzy Faye, Manny Fresh, and DJ Premier, and Swiss Beats, and Mr. Lee, and Mike Dean, and just all these great people out here who make incredible music. But as far as the, me writing to music, I could not do better than writing to Pimpsey's production. So the more the merrier for me. Tell me about what it was like um, immediately after uh, Pimpsey passed. Well, I think the main concern was trying to make sure, you know, doing it, I, whatever I could do to help, you know, the estate in any way. Um, but I wasn't initially concerned with myself and how I felt about it. I tried to charge on the best I could so that people would know that it was okay to mourn. I know a lot of the people that um, support UGK, especially the younger people living in what, what people tend to call these street lives or whatever, probably don't know exactly how to mourn or haven't really been shown how to deal with grief and death. And a lot of people, the young cats in the street, they tend to make a lot of bad decisions during times of pain and grieving and decisions that, you know, they can't take back and they make mistakes that cost them their entire futures, and in some cases, their lives. And I wanted to let people know that you weren't less than a man. If you had to cry, go ahead and cry, especially if you really love and care about people, you know. So I tried to tear down, you know, any misconceptions about, you know, being a man and, and grieving, especially in the urban community, as best I could. Did you get to take care of yourself? Uh, my wife made sure of that. I'll, I'll be very honest. Um after about uh, probably two weeks or so, my wife was like, okay, you need to take time for you because you're, you're taking too much time trying to be concerned about how everybody else is dealing with everything and you're not giving yourself time to deal with the situation. So 
she made sure that I, um, you know, I, I, I did what I had to do spiritually to, to work out whatever I had to work out. You had this kind of world champion commitment to the group when uh, Pimp was in jail. I mean, four years is a really long time, and, you know, nobody could have asked you to be more committed to the group than you were during that time. With Pimp gone, what was it like for you to be, you know, artistically in a world without him? I mean, it's 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 strange, you know what I'm saying? It it gets weird sometimes, you know what I'm saying? But I can't sit and act like it can't be done because, to a sense, we've already crossed that bridge. Um, the thing that makes it harder is the fact that he's not coming back to the process, which was one of the things that made it a bit easier to go through it while he was incarcerated was the fact that all we got to do is push and grind and stay motivated until he comes home and then everything will be okay again. Well, in this sense, he's he's not coming home, you know, and that's a reality that we all have to deal with and live with and remind ourselves of because uh, sometimes some people can be so alive that when they're gone and physic, you know, physically, the spirit still shines and still resonates so strong in a person's life. And, um, you know, like I said, there's not a day or, or to, for me, there's not an hour. Or, you know, that goes by where I don't, you know, think about him and consider it, you know, um, think about and consider what, you know, what he would say in certain situations or do in certain situations. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, his wife, I'm sure, is dealing with it a little bit worse than I am. I'm sure his children, his mother, you know what I'm saying, his father, there are people who, you know, I, I can probably say safely who miss him more than I do, you know. And if they can find the will, you know, and strength to get up and go on every day doing what it is they need to do to keep living, then why can't I? How did you approach putting together a UGK record without him being there? It was just a matter of doing what I knew he would have done, caring about it, you know, putting it first and foremost and making sure that everybody involved understood the gravity of the situation. Was there a kind of record that you wanted to make? A lot of times if if, if a hip-hop artist dies, it's um, that next record is a is a bunch of tributes, for example. And this this record isn't that. No, well, we had, we had basically set up a, a nice structure as to what the direction of where we wanted to go on the next project, and it already started moving toward that musically. So I knew basically what it shouldn't sound like. I wasn't sure exactly what the end result was going to be, but I knew what it what it couldn't be. And, um, you know, I knew it was impossible to catch lightning in a bottle twice and not going to be able to make another Ride and Dirty or, or, you know, another Super Tight or, or any of these other incredible albums that we've been able to make. But if I can make something that can make sense and sitting on that shelf, you know, then I, I think we'll be all right. And God bless Pimp because he left enough direction and gave enough of his sound and his creativity over to his next generation of protégés and producers who could, you know, um, implement, you know, all the tutelage and actually get as close to reproducing his sound as humanly possible. What are you most proud of personally as a as an MC? Like what what part of your work are you most proud of? I think at the end of the day, I'll be able to laugh and say that I got to rap to more Pimp C beats than anybody else. Because right now, you would be surprised how many people wish they could rap to some of that right now. 
And I will be able to say that I had the best partner that anybody could have had if you were going to make a rap group. Well, Bun, thank you so much for taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. It was really great to have you. Nah, man. Thanks for um, inviting me. You know, UGK for life. Long live Pimp C. There you go. Bun B is one half of the hip-hop group UGK. Their brand new record is called UGK for Life. PA is the town where it's going down. Westside to the east is off the chain. I'm banging my surround, swinging on these clouds. Candy paint is dripping, leaving stains. You see the diamonds dripping on the grain. Chrome ladies sitting on the grill. Leaning down the fifth, smoking on the fifth. Drop the top and let them see the trill. UGK for life, you better ask your wife. She'll tell you, bun and pimp the real. Like back the night, so if you act the shite, then I'ma give you something you can feel. Don't make me have to go with I cock it back and then I let it go, go. And put one in your dome Cause I'll be putting on for my city Better let it know That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Our underpaid editor is Nick White, who I want to hire for more money and more hours. So given the pledge drive, you can find us online at the all-new MaximumFun.org, looking fit as a fiddle and ready for Web 3.0. I also want to take this opportunity to clarify a confusion that came up on the Facebook page. My dog, Coco, is known as Coco the Brown Brown Dog. She's also known as Coco the Chocolate Dog and occasionally as Ruffleupagus. If you're not already a donor, hightail it over to MaximumFun.org and click on Donate now, 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 now. Okay, we'll be back later this week on The Sound of Young America.